Good morning. It's really fun for me to get to be with you all. I love getting to speak right here in my own hometown area. Um, as Justin said, my husband and I and our three kids and a dog, we live in a little town called Minneapolis right next door. And it's fun to just pop on over and be with you today and tomorrow. Um, I'm especially thrilled to get to do two days in a row. Whether you'll be thrilled about two days in a row, we'll see. But, and I know not everyone's required to come back tomorrow, but come on back tomorrow. I love that we get to have a couple of days together to dive in a little bit more deeply. And Northwestern is such a special community. I just, I really, truly sense the presence of Christ whenever I am here. And I've gotten to come for conferences and concerts. A lot of my good friends and mentors have stood on this exact stage here. And um, even this summer, I got to hang out on your tennis courts a lot because my son is really um, into tennis and he was training a lot this summer. And so it's just, I love any chance to get to come here and it's especially special to be here this morning and to talk about some things that are hard um, and, but there's a lot of hope to what we're gonna talk about too. And the main thing that I wanna look at, we're gonna dive in as deeply as we can in a short amount of time, but it's this question of how do we pursue Jesus and how do we become changed by him but not just for the sake of our own transformation, and even not even just for the sake of our own salvation, but for the sake of others. And I think this question of how do we pursue Jesus and become transformed by him for the sake of others, it's actually really a question about justice. What is the meaning of justice, and why does it matter? And we're gonna just jump straight into that. So, if you look at scripture, the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, you'll find that there's actually a lot about justice. And if you were to try to define justice from the Bible, I think the very most straightforward, simple formulation of what justice means is it means to set things right. Take things that are wrong, set them right. But sometimes in order to best understand what this kind of abstract idea could be, like justice. It's, it can be quite up in the theoretical realm. It's hard to bring it down to the ground. And even the idea of rightness, that can be really abstract and lots of different opinions out there about what is actually right. So sometimes to get a definition like that, we wanna just flip it and say, well, what's the opposite? What's the opposite of right? Yeah. Yeah. One more time. The opposite of right is wrong. wrong. There you go. You're starting off great. <laughs> Fresh back from Thanksgiving, woo, okay. The opposite of right, it's wrong. And to better understand what biblical justice means and how we pursue it, let's take a look at what's wrong in the world. probably doesn't take long to think of something that's wrong in our world right now. I'm gonna take us into a particular issue called slavery. Slavery is also known as human trafficking. And the reality is that today in our world, the wrong of slavery, what it looks like is more 
human beings owned by other human beings than any other time in the history of our world. Today, there is more slavery today than there were even during that 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade combined. There are more slaves in the world today. It's actually the fastest growing criminal industry on our planet. The sale of human beings to other human beings. The treatment of human beings worse than animals. It's actually the second largest criminal industry. Not only the fastest growing, but the second largest criminal industry just behind the sale of drugs. But the sale of drugs is not nearly as profitable even as the sale of human beings. If you think of a sale of a drug, you sell a drug and it's consumed. That's it, you sell it once, it's gone. A human being, on the other hand, can be sold over and over and over and over again. And the sale of that human being only stops when they become worthless to the seller and they're discarded. The International Labor Organization actually estimates that the sale of human beings is now a $150 billion industry. That's bigger than the tech giants of Apple and Samsung and others, Microsoft, their profits, that's more than their profits combined annually. It's all over the globe, it's in our own neighborhoods, we know it's happening right here in the Twin Cities. The US Department of Justice has identified the Twin Cities as one of the top 15 trafficking hubs in the nation. The average age of a Minnesota girl who's trafficked for sex is 13 years old, many as young as 11 years old. These st statistics, they're numbers, they're big. They can get really overwhelming. They can even just become abstract. They can either crush us or they can, they can numb us because they're so big. And in all honesty, still to this day, I sometimes find myself asking, okay, with this big of a problem, what is the point of even trying to do anything at all? I don't know what you might be thinking or feeling as you're processing this yourself, but I would guess, though, that inside of you, you still know, no matter how overwhelmed you might be by it or callous you might feel by it, you know it's not right. You know that at root, this is not right. Slavery is wrong. Human trafficking is heinous. We know that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. But how? How do we know that? What's our basis for believing that things not only could be different, but ought to be different? And what can any of us even do to make that difference? These are the kinds of questions that could actually lead us down a path of cynicism. Could even lead us into a place of despair, just total despondency. But I found that these questions, how do we know what's right? What's our basis? What are we gonna do about it? They're actually really important questions and that there's a very thin line separating that temptation to cynicism and despair versus something far more powerful and that's hope. 
and what tips us every day either towards cynicism and despair and just doing nothing at all versus stepping out in hope. What tips us is simply whether when we have questions, when we face what's going on in the world, we turn away from God or we turn toward him. Whether we bring these big, messy questions and we ask God to take it out of the abstract and make it real and show us what to do. Because here's the thing, justice, it can be this really abstract idea and it's agreed upon by most people in society that justice is a, it's a good thing. And we can come up with all sorts of ideas of what we're gonna do to make things better in the world. But the problem is justice never actually begins with us. All of our best ideas, all of our good intentions, they're going to wear out if we don't start first with the God of justice. Justice begins in the heart of God. Now, this is a biblical truth. <laughs> but it's not always been clear to me. No matter how much I studied the Bible, this is actually the Bible that I carried all through my teenage and college years. It's literally, if I opened it, it would fall apart on the stage. I carried this thing around with me everywhere, and yet, as well as I knew it, for most of my life, I missed God's heartbeat for justice in these scriptures. 17 years ago, I loved the Bible so much that I went to seminary. I was in seminary, studying the Bible, preparing for full-time ministry. And I was eating lunch one day, and I came out of the cafeteria. And I was on my way to class, but I had a little bit more time that day, and so something caught my eye down the hallway. And I wandered over, and a woman from the Salvation Army had driven up from D.C. to Princeton just for that day, and she'd set up a little booth and there was a poster hanging up. And I'll never forget seeing that poster. There was a picture of a girl, she had a tear streaming down her cheek and it just said two things. It said, slavery is alive. And underneath that it said, rape for profit must be stopped. That was the first time I ever knew that slavery did not end in my history textbooks. I did not know that slavery was still happening in our world today. I had no idea there could be an entire industry that could be called rape for profit. I had no idea, and I took these tiny steps forward. I looked at Lisa, the woman who'd put up this poster, and I said, okay, what do I do? And she just slid this mailing list across the table to me and handed me a pen. And Looking back, I mean, that's about the smallest step anyone could ever take. But it was so pivotal for me. I put my name down on this mailing list. I started getting emails from Lisa every day in my inbox. And it, it changed everything. I started to learn so much about what was happening in the world. And I got this information, inundation, stories all over the planet of human trafficking. But what happened was, it was more than I could handle. I didn't know how to process the suffering that I was starting to get exposed to. 
and I started to learn more, and I had this overwhelming sense of wanting to do something about it. I wanted to bring rescue. I wanted to be a part of like bringing down human trafficking, but I didn't know anything that I possibly could do. And the problem was that I was getting all this information without the transformation of Jesus. So I knew my Bible on the one hand, and then I knew all this stuff about human trafficking on the other hand, but I hadn't figured out that there was a connection. What I needed was a biblical framework to strengthen and undergird all of this information that was coming at me. I needed the transforming of our minds that Paul talks about in Romans, where he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I needed to know not just that there were justice needs in the world, but there was a God of justice who was already at work in the world, and he was inviting us into it, inviting me to join him in it. And so I started to open my Bible again and read it with new eyes. And it blew me away what I had missed. I'm going to show you a snapshot of Isaiah 58. This is from back when, actually not that one, but the picture of the Bible. Um, this is Isaiah 58 in my Bible from college. And if you look at it closely, I had written all around Isaiah 58, like the very beginning of it, the very end of it, Isaiah 59, it had all these notes and underlinings, but there's this section in the middle, six through 10, where there is this blazing clear call to justice for our neighbors. And that was the only part in this whole section of Isaiah that I had literally just never even touched. I was super interested in everything that Isaiah might have to say about me and about my own spiritual transformation. But when it came to calling out to neighbors, to going out into the world and bringing real help to real people and living out who Jesus has transformed us to be, I had missed it. But then when I started to look at it again, I realized that justice and the gospel are inextricable. Jesus stands up at the very beginning of his ministry. If you look at Luke 4, he stands up in the temple, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he speaks the words that are prophesying about him. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is here now to transform us and not just for our own salvation, as massive as that is, but for the sake of others. He's calling us out. God's word tells us that yes, we are in bondage to sin. We live under a yoke of slavery to the powers and principalities of darkness until Jesus Christ brings us out of it, right? Until Jesus Christ brings us freedom. This is the gospel, but this is not where the gospel ends. When Jesus frees us from our spiritual yoke of slavery to sin and death, Jesus also invites us as we follow him, renewed day by day by the Holy Spirit. He invites us to break physical yokes of slavery and suffering that bind millions 
of people in our world today. And this points to Jesus. The breaking of the chains of oppression today, it points to Jesus as the rescuer, the great rescuer. Let's take a quick, too quick look back at Isaiah 58 for a moment. I'm going to read it with you. You can follow along on the screen. If you prefer, you can close your eyes and immerse in the words of the word of God. Whatever you need to do to settle yourself and listen to the word of God, our God of justice. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. This is the prophet of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talking to the people of Israel about injustice in their own community. Isaiah is indicting the people of God for pursuing a worship that serves their own personal interests and stops there. For worshiping and neglecting at the same time the obvious and the desperate needs of those right around them. And just as Isaiah spoke to God's people in his own day, he is speaking to us today. Isaiah is offering both an indictment, a conviction, but he's also offering us a promise in this prophecy. And it's echoed in the life and the teachings and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Isaiah's words beg our question. What does it mean to pursue Jesus and to be transformed by him, not just for the sake of our own salvation, but for the sake of others, for justice? They're urgent questions that we're asking, but they're not urgent in the sense that God is waiting around wondering when we're going to get up and do something. Certainly not. The question's urgent because God has intentionally placed each of us in this particular moment in human history when we have more access than ever before to know the staggering and, yes, overwhelming needs of others. And in the face of the needs of others, God's inviting us. He, he's beckoning us. This joyful invitation to go with him on an adventure of bringing 
justice, of making what's wrong right. This command is also an invitation in Isaiah to loose the chains of injustice, he says. Untie the cords of the yoke. He says, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Now, most of what I've learned about all of this since those first days of starting to connect what's happening in the world with what's always been there with God's heart and scripture, so much came through working with an organization called International Justice Mission, IJM. And IJM exists to rescue victims of slavery and other forms of violence all over the world. I served with them for over a decade, and I think giving you an example from their work will be helpful to us, primarily because they not only are a group of professionals, lawyers, social workers, criminal investigators, doing justice on the front lines, but they're also a community that's following Jesus together. They're not going at it alone. They're not trying to do it from their own good ideas. They are passionately pursuing Jesus together. And so they have offices all over the world. And my very first couple of months on the job with IJM, they sent me to an office that they had just opened in Cambodia. I was not personally operational, to be clear. I am not a criminal investigator or an attorney. I was going to meet our staff who are on the front lines and to hear and to learn and to share their stories. And when IJM first started operations in Cambodia in 2003, it was ground zero for the trafficking of children for sex. IJM staff found children being openly sold on the streets, children as young as five years old, being offered to sex tourists who would just flock to Cambodia because they knew they could buy children and get away with it. And when I visited Cambodia, I met several of these little girls, including these girls named Kunti and Chanda. And they were about 11 years old when they were sold by their own mothers to human traffickers. The traffickers would bring men, the customers, into the brothel where Kunti and Chanda were being held. And the girls were forced to smile as they were evaluated and as prices were given for what it would cost to have them. And any tears that they needed to cry were actually stifled by the traffickers who would shoot narcotics into their bloodstream to sedate them. And the police in the region were known for protecting the traffickers. They would take bribes and turn a blind eye and profit from the sale of children. Now, Kunti and Chanda, they were Vietnamese girls who had been trafficked from Vietnam into Cambodia, and their story is not unique. It is so common, especially in the most poverty-stricken parts of the world. Human traffickers prey on the vulnerable. And when I met them, when I met Kunti and Chanda, the words of Isaiah echoed for me. If you loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. But how could light possibly break forth in this kind of darkness? 
Well, over time, one of the most important lessons that I would learn from my colleagues was that seeking justice doesn't begin at the door of a brothel. It doesn't begin at a slavery compound. No matter how many millions of little girls and boys and women are waiting to be freed, that's not where we start. Seeking justice begins by seeking the God of justice. And seeking justice begins when we turn toward that God with hope rather than despair. And every day we're going to have an opportunity to respond to the needs of others, whether nearby or far away, every day. And much of that need when we draw close, it's going to be heartbreaking and it's going to seem impossible. And every day we're gonna be tempted to start to try to come up with solutions on our own or to just put it away and not think about it. And what I've learned is that if our attempts to meet the needs of others, if, they, if our attempts to seek justice don't first begin with seeking the God of justice, who made all of us, we're gonna wear out. But when we pursue the work of serving our neighbors and seeking justice, first and foremost, as a work of prayer, as a work of drawing near to God, an outpouring of our relationship with Jesus Christ, there's no limit to the miracles of transformation that we're going to see. There's no limit to what God can do through your life. We're going to come back to this tomorrow. We're going to look again at Kunti and Chanda, and we're going to dive in more deeply to some practical ways to move toward God. Let's pray. God, thank you for these students. Thank you for your heartbeat in them. Would you bless them as they go out of here today? Would you remind them of your power, your Holy Spirit with them? Draw them near, draw them close. In the name of Jesus, God the Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.